our scripture today comes from Genesis. Genesis 2, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Katie. Well, hi, I'm Kyle. Uh, I get to help pastor in this community, um, which I'm always trying to figure out what is the like most confusing and least awkward way to introduce myself. And I feel like that one is kind of like the, the sweet spot. So you may hear some different iterations of my introductions. If there's one that you're like, hey, you should try this on, um, you can email me at kyle at thegatewaychurch.com. And I may or may not reply, but I will likely receive it. And then uh, if you hear it in the forthcoming weeks, you'll be like, that was me. I did it. It was me. Oh, goodness sakes. Well, uh, today we continue in this little six-week mini-series on the Sabbath. Uh, and it strikes me because, uh, you know, two weeks ago, on this very day, two billion people around the world reoriented the trajectory of their lives to gather in collective worship. And they did so because on this day, two weeks ago, was Easter Sunday. And there's something about resurrection life breaking forth from an empty tomb that compelled people through sacred liturgies and significant and shared meals and even public displays of grandeur. Like if you've ever been or seen in Spain, these processions that are led, I mean, this is like a dramatic show. All to declare the defiant story of Jesus, namely that God in Christ has died to death to release life to never taste the pangs of death again. Amen? Amen. Okay, so that is uh, Easter Sunday. And then we move into the next week. And here we are two weeks out. And I wonder if this question is lingering in the air for you as it isn't for me. Like, uh, but now what? Like there's all of this energy. I mean, the, the whole Lenten, we go in and it's like we enter into death. We take up the Lenten practice of we withhold. We maybe even fast and we say, I'm going to starve the flesh to feed the spirit. I'm going to cultivate this deep hunger and longing because I know that resurrection life is on the horizon. But, but, now, like, but now what? Like what, what does it mean? Like have you ever wondered what comes in the wake of resurrection? Like what comes when new creation has come forth from the grave, when, when like death is kind of lingering in the air, but life has triumphed, what do we do there? And I'm not, I'm not talking about the chronological progression of events that would be recorded in the evangelists. Like you have Jesus showing up to his homies. He's at 500 people, at, you know, like as Paul will say, or even those things like the ascension. I'm not talking about the chronology of the events, but, but what do we do? Like the curiosity I have is like, what ought to come out of us? If the, if the resurrection tells us as followers of Jesus that neither suffering nor fear nor the grave can contain the life and power of Jesus, like what should we do? And I, I don't know if you've wondered about this, but I myself, have been, maybe it's an occupational hazard because I'm like week to week trying to think, okay, like what does it mean for us to live with the resurrection as the inflection point of our lives? Um, that's why I ask all these rhetorical questions, which at some level are not rhetorical. Like what do we do? And if your impulse is anything like mine, then 
what comes to mind are these oughts and shoulds of religious devotion. It's internal and external. It's uh, more prayer or more gatherings or more disciplines. It's the internal and external expression of my devotion. It's kind of like, and maybe it's just personality. Like if you're a seven on the Enneagram or you've been annoyed by one of them recently, um, you know, it's like that, that it's like, let's more, 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 more up into the right kind of impulse. And if that's not you, that's fine. I'm just, you know, being vulnerable, but here we are. See, regardless of your personality, typology, or whatever, the resurrection calls for a type of response. And, and there's an irony, maybe even a type of sadness, to the response that comes to the surface of my heart. And it's like, it's, the irony and sadness is, what should I do? And this is what I mean. When you open to page one of the scriptures, our story, the human story, is not one rooted in work and toil, or as millennials are prone to call it, hustle. You may have heard this, I got a little side hustle. It's like, no, you're just like, like stacking up your burnout. Those little chuckles that you heard were people going, oh gosh. No, ours is not that story. Ours is a story set in delight, and it all starts by stopping. Let me, let me just sh show you. If you want, you're welcome to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. This is page 1 of your scriptures, picking up in verse 26. This is what we read. Then God's, just hold on a second. God is speaking. Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Ours is a story set in delight and it starts by stopping this is our origin story. It's a story dripping with divine blessing. And if you just, just track this with me for a moment, I'm about to do a little recap because we're adult learners here, so we need to hear something and then hear it again in different words. Creation breaks out. You have land and sea and skies, and then you have the creatures to fill all those different spaces from the birds and the fish to the creepy crawlies and the beasts of the field. And then you get the imagers of God or humanity. 
the ones who distinctly reflect God's goodness out into all of creation, the ones invited into God's creative current, they emerge humanity. And this is verse 27. We should marvel. Like, I don't know if we should just fall down in worship when we hear this, but let's just hear the again. So God created humanity in his own image. In the, ma- in the image of God, he created them male and female. It's like all of creation. We all have that reality coming to bear on us that we reflect God. God's goodness. And now creation, there it is, brimming with potential. And before humanity has any chance to go forth, to to like do, any chance to push the bounds of Eden outward, creation comes to rest. If we were to say it differently, creation culminates in Sabbath. In the very next verse, Chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Can we just, um, God rested on the seventh day. Is this, I've read this a lot, and this just like hit a little bit differently. God after all of that, rested from his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. A fun little nugget that's not in my notes, but this will just be one extra minute. When you think about who was blessed before this, you have humanity who was blessed, and they were blessed to go forth and multiply. But before that, you have the creatures who are blessed to also go forth and multiply. Um, go forth and multiply is code for put the corresponding parts together and make babies. Sabbath is also blessed. Huh? The seventh day, in other words, has a type of fruitfulness embedded in it, waiting for like new life. It's as though the week is pregnant and then life breaks forth on the Sabbath. It's like, for six days, God orders the chaos and then he puts a bow on creation. He marvels at his work, rests and calls it holy. So I used to teach, and some of you have been in the little like crash course on theology here, and you've heard me say, humanity is the pinnacle of God's creative work. And, and you, you'll be right to notice that humanity has this unique and distinctive blessing announced. They are tove, tove, very good. Creation is good and good, tove, 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 but humanity is tove, tove. So yes, that's true, but only one thing in all of creation is called holy. That's the Sabbath. Like time itself is set apart as distinct. It's holy to the Lord. Our origin story is about more than going forth and subduing creation, the thing that we lovingly call hustle. See, before humanity takes up any notion of doing, really before we can draw the breath to ask what should be done in light of this creative work, Sabbath holds us before the Creator. Just pay attention here. Whatever's outside is not as significant as this moment. Sabbath holds us before the Creator to simply delight in creation. So I don't know what you've heard about Sabbath before. I don't know what your preconceived notions are, positive, neutral, hostile. We're going to 
step into the story that scriptures are telling. And, and I think it's one like this, this, that Sabbath comes to all of us, to all of creation as a gift, as grace, as a container for delight and joy. There is a type of lightness to Sabbath. So if immediately you think of heavy burden or another thing to do, why don't you just nip that in the bud? So I'll just give you a moment. Nip that, little buddy. Sabbath is a container for delight and joy. And what's so curious to me is that when you start a conversation about the Sabbath, especially among Christians, and then just to put this aside, among like theologically trained Christians, I'm talking about those seminarians, um, the conversation gets really weird. And it gets really weird because it yields this type of resistance. There's a, a theological resistance, there's an external resistance, and there's even this internal resistance. The, the theological resistance sounds somewhat like this. It might be like, okay, um, in the wake of the resurrection, I live in the age of grace. The old has gone, the new has come, the law is no longer written on tablets of stone, it's written by the Holy Spirit on my heart. And we, we can all just say like yes and amen to that, that God mysteriously brings his words into the core of our inner man or inner woman, yes and amen. But the, the theological resistance goes further. It says, well, I'm not bound to that. And my favorite way of, of talking about that loosening from the law sounds like this, I keep the spirit of Sabbath. And I, I was chatting to Matt Crummy about this and he said something that was kind of funny. He said, you know, that's like hearing someone say, I keep the spirit of marriage. And you're like, huh. Or, or maybe say it a different, like, I keep the spirit of truth. I re I'm really just, you know, I'm still telling lies, but it's the spirit of truth that I'm keeping. And you're like, well, what exactly does that even mean? It sounds a bit ridiculous. That's maybe some of the theological resistance. But it's not just the theological resistance that comes up when we're talking about the Sabbath in Christian spaces. It's also this external resistance. It's the demands of life. And we could sum up the demands of life in one statement. I'm too busy to practice or keep the Sabbath. And I just, I, I, I want to like pump the brakes here. Because if you feel like, okay, here's another pastor about to make me feel crappy for how full my life is. That's not what I'm doing. If you feel crappy for how full your life is, it might just be because your life is really full. That's not me. I just want to say, and I'm not here to elicit shame or do anything like that. I, I just want to say it's likely that we are all worn thin. I have two small humans. Yesterday, I yelled multiple times at my elder son. We are worn thin. And so the goal here is to talk about a different way of inhabiting time, to enter into Sabbath rest with God so we can take on a new posture, have a new life, so that we, when we're asked, I'm sure you're really busy, or are you busy, we could say, no, I'm actually not. Is this making sense? My goal here is not to shame you, but just to, to name the reality that we're likely living in and then to talk about how the scriptures invite us into something different. There are external resistance that we feel and it comes out in statements like, I'm too busy. It's the hurried pace. It's the cultural expectations, etc., etc. And then there's this internal resistance. And the thing that comes up in me is this fear. I, this may not be true for you. I'm just, this is hopefully something that you can relate to. But it's this fear that the Sabbath as a container of delight is almost too good to be true. Like that, 
we're, we're going to be tasked with an assignment in the forthcoming weeks to craft a whole 24-hour period with the things that you love the most. And when I think about that, the thing that rises up in me is like, I don't, could I re really? Like, am I allowed that? So there's this fear that it's too good to be true. Like there couldn't be a whole day every week on offered by God for my delight and joy. So there's theological resistance. There's external resistance in our pace and even these things that bubble up from within us. And my guess is that if you were here last week that you started to feel some of this resistance, maybe a smattering of all, the theological, the external, the internal. And that's okay. My guess is, like, I, I, am, I am entirely aware that what I am asking our community to do is to push against everything in your life. And you will likely not like it. I have been working for years with therapists, Jessica, my wife, to have some sort of internal fortitude to deal with the resistance that you feel. We've got this. Like our leadership, we're trying to craft our lives in such a way that we might actually be able to take on the rhythms of grace so we can invite you into and model it as we're trying it together. If you feel like this resistance, that's okay. But that resistance in my mind is actually part of the gift. We want to push into and move through that. To take hold of that resistance, to sit with the discomfort and invite God into that tension. It's a different way of moving toward the Sabbath because the Sabbath is actually good news. I, I'm of the mind that the Sabbath holds the same invitation in the wake of new creation that it did at the beginning of creation to come and delight. And last week, Jesus called us to come to him. He called us to come to him with our weary and burdened souls so that we could receive his rest. This morning, I want to propose to you that practicing the Sabbath in whatever season of life you're in, to practice delight is our right response to resurrection life. That Sabbath is part and parcel of coming to Jesus and receiving his rest. And so with the remainder of our time, I just wanna build out like a brief biblical theology, which is a nerdy way of just going from the left to the right in the Bible. I just wanna build out a brief biblical theology of the Sabbath, the wisdom of the Sabbath, and to, to help anchor us along the way, I want you to keep this in your mind and I'm gonna ask you to repeat it back to me. Uh, the Sabbath is about imitation and liberation. So here we are. The Sabbath is about imitation and liberation. Just why don't you do it by yourself here now? Let me show you why. Okay, there are two uh, main Hebrew words used for our English word rest in the Bible. The first one you'll recognize, it is Shabbat. Give that one a try. That's nice. So Shabbat is kind of what you think. It is rest, but it, it literally means to cease or to stop. And you think about a job where you punched in and punched out. Do, do any of you remember those machines? Yes. I worked at the physical plant in college and I would go in and I remember the sound and it was like a, you punched it. You literally had to hit that bad mamma jamma to say this is the time I was in and the time I was out. And when you hit it, you said, I am done. My work has ceased. In other words, it had the Shabbat took place. The other main Hebrew word used for rest in the scriptures is nuach. This one you have to clear your throat a little bit. We're going to do this. Nuach. That's nice. 
Isn't that a fun word, nuach? There's another word, it's uh, menuha. We're not going to focus on that one. We're just doing Shabbat and nuach. But uh, nuach is uh, to dwell or settle or, again, rest. And this is different from clocking in or clocking out. This has this... Um, kind of felt experience of going with loved ones and sitting around, maybe with a, a beverage of choice in hand around a warm fire. It's cold outside, but you like are snuggled up under a blanket and the crackle and the smell, like all of it, the whole aesthetic of Nuach is that type of rest. Or the moment where you go home, where it's like the place that you long to be, but you didn't know it until you stepped through the doors because it's the familiar smells and sounds. It's... That's the rest. And what's so beautiful about Shabbat and Nuach is how they are bound together in our origin story. For six days, God orders chaos. He makes time to Shabbat from his work, calls it holy. And then in Genesis 2.15, we read that God creates humanity and Nuachs them, rests them in the garden. So God Shabbats from his work and then Nuachs humanity in the Garden of Delight or the Garden of Eden, creation climaxed in Sabbath. God rests, therefore we rest in God. This is the movement of the Sabbath because Sabbath is about imitation. But if, if you know the, the story and how it progresses, um, you know that rest gives way to toil and even the land then is subject to the burden of the human fallout story that's recorded in Genesis 3. This is the whole thorns and thistles bit. And there what we see is that God, for all intents and purposes, for the remainder of Genesis, is straining with humanity to reestablish a people of peace who delight in his presence, who go and they want to dwell in delight. And God is feverishly pursuing humanity. And there are moments we think rest might come. This is Noah, who's floating around in a miniature garden of Eden, and then goes and Noah, Nuach's on the top of him. And you're like, this is a new creation story. And he goes and he plants a vineyard. And you're like, and he, he, offer, he builds an altar, offers a sacrifice. And you're like, it's gonna, it, that was a pretty quick little, it was a decline. But now we've arrived. But then something shady happens in a tent. And you're like, oh, no. And then the ham thing. And it's like everything just declines from there. And then you get to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And you think, could this be the guy? And then immediately you see, like, Sarah's like, well, this is my sister. And he's like, well, I was kind of afraid, so why don't you just have her? And then, so it's like, okay, clearly not him. And, well, maybe it's one of the descendants to whom God promises. Is it, is it going to be Isaac? No, because it's the same toil of Abraham and the same toil of Noah. And then maybe it's going to be Jacob or Joseph. But no, the toil persists in the story. And each, each character, you're like looking for this person from whom rest will flow, that God will partner with, and yet it continues never to be realized. And it's quite the opposite, Israel. Israel ends up working without rest. They are enslaved in bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt. They find themselves... In that place, under the burden, under the yoke of slavery, crying out, and God hears their cries, and he sends a deliverer so that they might worship him and take rest. 
Eventually, there's this kind of battle for power, and uh, the Pharaoh says, I've never heard of Yahweh, the one true creator God. You can read about this in the Exodus account. Eventually, the people are delivered, and they're then out, and God invites them to, like a bride, come and rest in the care of his loving relationship. They say yes, and then we get what we call the Ten Commandments. And then the fourth and longest, 37% of the Ten Commandments is right here. This is Exodus Chapter 20, picking up in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a, shab- is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, and listen to this, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner in your towns. Just stop right there. Have you ever considered the implications of the Sabbath for your pets? Like, like your cats? Just noodle around on that for a while. And why? Why do this? Why rest in that way? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Of all the words, of all the commandment that God gives to the newly created people, this word on the Sabbath, it is the longest, and it's the only one with a rationale. It's the only one that says why. And do you remember why? It's right there in verse 11, because God did it. And you're like, well, Kyle, you don't know. I'm like working for permission. No, hold on. God rested. You're thinking, well, gosh, I'm like a new parent, or I have young children, or I'm, I'm like trying to live life at the pace of 2023. Like, you, you just don't know. No. God rested. And so Sabbath is first about imitation. And the invitation to do so, the rationale, is because four in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. He blessed the Sabbath day. He made it holy. The Sabbath is about imitation. You know, it's pointed out by Professor A.J. Swoboda in his book, uh, Subversive Sabbath, that when he was pastoring, he would 100% have lost his job if he had uh, committed adultery or if he had stolen, whether it was from the church he was working at or the college that he was employed at, like, because that's what, like embezzling funds. So those can, if he murdered somebody, definitely losing his job. But he found that he could actually brag about how much work he was doing. He, he could go and he could work the hardest of all of the people. And rather than having any sort of consequence, he could get a promotion. The irony is that he could profane the Sabbath and yet get blessed in the eyes of his congregants. And there's this line of thinking that crops up that he explains that I thought was kind of comical. So I'm just riffing on the things he was saying in, in his book. He says, uh, the line that comes up is, well, you know, Satan never rests, and so we should never rest. And he goes, well, that's why he's Satan. There's this line that comes up in Job that he goes to and fro, like across the earth, never resting, never ceasing. He's going like to and fro across the face of the earth. He's never resting. Just, let's just agree here that if there's somebody that we would do well to model our life after in our ministry, not Satan, 
not Satan. Maybe Jesus of Nazareth, but not Satan. Because when you look at God manifest in Jesus of Nazareth, he's never in a hurry. In fact, Jesus is constantly getting interrupted. Do you remember that story in Mark chapter 5? There's, he's going to heal the boy, the girl. He's going to heal the girl who's 12. And then there's this woman who through the crowd reaches out and grabs his garment, just, just the fringe of it. And he goes, who touched me? He stops. It's reported to him that the kid has died, but the woman is healed. But then he goes and he said, well, they're not dead. They're just resting. And people are like, what are you, what are you talking about? Jesus is constantly being interrupted. He's never in a hurry. But then we think that you know, Jesus is actually down on the Sabbath because he's often getting into beef with the Pharisees about the Sabbath on the Sabbath. So surely Jesus has a different view of what the Sabbath ought to be. But Jesus loves the Sabbath. He's not actually talking about this, like, he's not riffing with the law of the Sabbath. He's riffing about the fence that has been built around the Sabbath in order to, like, protect the people from not breaking the Sabbath. He's like, no, you don't get the Sabbath. Jesus is living at God's pace. Do you know what he's doing? He's feasting with people. He, like, healing is being released. He's going on walks in nature. Spiritual disciplines are simply anything that you can observe in the life of Jesus and then take on board in your life today. You know how often Jesus was just walking around? Have any of you walked today? Some of you are not raising your hand. This is a participatory moment. Okay, I'm just going to assume that all of you are like, yes, we all walked today. Um, walking can be transformed by attending and attuning to God into a discipline whereby we are drawn toward Jesus' life, so too the Sabbath. It is that simple. Jesus is simply resting in God's presence at God's pace. And there's a, a scholar, Bernard Oak, he puts it this way. The Sabbath is that point in time where God and man meet. On the seventh day of creation, God joined himself and his eternal presence to his temporal creation to the world of man. On the Sabbath day, man not only recalls but participates in an act of cosmic creation. He experiences the original structuring of time within the microcosm of his own life. The observance of Sabbath links humanity to a divinely ordained future as well as a divinely created path, past. A Sabbath observance has cosmic incomplete implications, a foretaste of an eschatological future, a prefiguration of the final phase of the divine human reconciliation. And then listen to this point, because he brings it together. In pointing back to the beginning, the Sabbath also points to what is yet to be, to the final destiny to which all of creation is moving. In other words, Sabbath is about imitation, but Sabbath is also about liberation. If you recall at the end of the Torah, these are the first five books of the Bible, as God's people are about to enter into the land of rest, the land of promise, Moses is there, but he's not going to enter, but he gives these speeches. And in one of these speeches, he reiterates in Deuteronomy 5 all of the commands, but there's this specific amendment to the Sabbath command. This, this, let's see if you can sniff it out. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your ox or your donkey, and any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Did you hear it? If, if in Exodus 20, the command of the Sabbath was about keeping it holy because God had rested. For God rested, therefore you can enter into God and rest as well. But in Deuteronomy 5, Moses says, no, 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 remember that you were once enslaved. But the Sabbath is not just about imitation, it is also about liberation. It is a place where we who were once enslaved can remember that God has held a space in time called holy. And we can like take rest from the yoke, from the burden of our slavery. And regardless of our circumstances, we can enter into like that cathedral in time and receive God's rest because Sabbath is about liberation. Let me just say this. If you cannot stop from your work, no matter how much you love it, if you cannot stop for your work for a 24 hour period of time, it might just be an indication of your slavery. I think the Indian Old Testament scholar Gnanan Robson kind of builds on this theme and he says this, the Sabbath grows into a symbol signifying humanity's salvation and freedom. Free from bondage, both external, oppression and slavery in Egypt and internal, sin and estrangement from God and other humans, freedom from anxieties as to what to eat and where to live, Sabbath thus acquires a future meaning by abstaining from work every seventh day, humanity stands before God in absolute freedom, rejoicing in salvation and looking forward to the realization of this joy of God's salvation and freedom for all peoples of all times. This is the hope of Sabbath, about imitating God for liberation's sake. The Sabbath is not just another thing to do. It is actually a place where we need to probably place on the altar of God some things that are holding us back from Him and one another. Notice this in, in Deuteronomy 5. There's this interesting addition that talks about the animals, but then it's for any foreigner residing in your towns. Like the, the people of Israel were to keep the Sabbath holy by remembering that God did it, so they're imitating him, but also because of their liberation. So they were not to become the oppressors as they were oppressed, but they were to be a people in a place, like a refuge. It's amazing in the economy of God that there would be a place in time that those who had no place, who have been forcefully removed from their homes, that they also would not have to work for their livelihood. I, what, what's so hard about this is like I'm preaching this sermon with an iPad and an iPhone in front of me. And as, like my, as family members talk about their love for their new electronic vehicle, and I'm thinking about like all of the raw minerals that are required to source that. If you've ever, like, uh, there's a book out there called Cobalt Red. Don't read it if you want to sleep. 
essentially the raw minerals that are required to support this booming economy, like there are people who will never rest because I have an appetite that will also never rest. Sabbath is to push back against that. It is not just a liberation from us and our busyness. It is a liberation from those who are literally held in bondage. And you might think, what can a church of 100-ish people in the downtown Des Moines area, like what can they do to push back against it? Probably just a little in the material. And this might sound weird, but what if a community, what if a, like a church like this said, we are going to receive God's rest? I just have to imagine that that is an affront to the, the principalities and powers who want to hold us in bondage to that busyness. And you may think, well, that's weird theologically, and I don't really get what you're saying. Sabbath is about imitation and it is about liberation, not just for you or your neighbor, but those who are far, those who are near. And if we cannot stop our work, no matter how important we are, perhaps it indicates that we too are in bondage. See, when you look throughout the course of the Hebrew Bible, which I know how we're doing on time, so we're just gonna stop down at one spot. This, I think, is epitomized in the words of the prophet Isaiah. When, when receiving like the burden of this ache, the prophet Isaiah says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty or release to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion or Jerusalem, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Toil has told the story of so much of creation. Toil tells the story of affliction and heartbreak and mourning and captivity of sadness. But Sabbath, the great rest, has a different story to tell. It brings good news to our affliction. It binds up our brokenness. It sets us free from our slavery. And the hope of the people of Israel is realized not just in a thing that you practice, but in a person whose name is Jesus. And I'm not just making this up when you go to Luke 4 listen to this this is what Jesus himself says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to preach gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor Jesus is teaching this text on a Sabbath in the synagogue. And then he says this, and he closed the book or the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. All of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he, like a boss, just says, and this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this is fulfilled. We are like God's newly created people called to remember our creator and to imitate him, to cease and rest. We are like the newly commissioned generation in the wilderness called to resist the bonds of our former ways, to put on the new, to cease and rest. We are the ones weary and burdened, toiling away with a different invitation at hand to come to Jesus, to receive rest. We are the ones that Jesus, the one who Mark calls in Mark chapter 2, the Lord of the Sabbath. 
We are the ones that Jesus called to come so that he might release us unto rest. The Sabbath is not a metaphor. We don't keep the spirit of Sabbath. It's not an allegory or a parable. It is a gift, a tangible, real 24-hour period of time where we can cease and delight and feast and play and pray. It is a place of joy. And let me be abundantly clear. A day off is not the same as a Sabbath. The day off is what Eugene Peterson calls the bastard Sabbath. Okay. In the Sabbath economy, there are six days for all the stuff that we didn't get done. But there is one day that God has called holy. And if you think, well, what's going to happen? Well, let me just remind you of who God is in Christ. This is what we read in the famous Christ hymn in Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. And hear this, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you don't get something done, I think we'll be okay. It's really hard sometimes to leave on a Sunday and realize that things go just fine. Or for Kate to be gone and for things to go haywire is like, oh goodness. But you know what? Like, we, we're going to be okay. We are indispensable. And that might sound crazy. Like, we're indispensable, but you're more than what you produce. You are not your production. We can actually enter into the Sabbath, this container of delight and joy, and release the illusion that holds us captive, that we are in control. We can allow God to be who God is, namely God. <laughs> to close, Marjorie Thompson in her book, Soul Feast, has this line that I think brings us all together. So I could have just said this, but the rest of that was just for fun. To rest in God is implicitly to critique a culture of constant production. To trust in God is to undermine a culture obsessed by control. Even to enjoy God is to play the fool in a culture that often takes itself too seriously. We are not indispensable. And keeping the Sabbath opens up space in our lives to trust God to be God, that he is a creator. We are his creatures. And I'm under no illusion that practicing the Sabbath we'll confront a lot of our ideals, that there are going to be things that must die in our life for the Sabbath to be something we enter into. And no one's keeping score. No one's keeping score. Because this isn't a place of shame. It's a place of response to resurrection life, that there's something beyond the grave. And it's called living. It's called easy. It is the yoke that Jesus offers us. Sabbath is not the fulfillment of resurrection rest, by the way. Sabbath is but a sign that points forward to our true rest. When you flip to the very end of the scriptures, what you see is Jesus with his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. On Sabbath, we feast to point forward to that. In a few moments, we'll take the bread and the cup to point forward to that. 
These are just little symbols in time to point us forward to the ultimate reality. But what that also means is that the ultimate reality can break out in through our lives. And I don't care about your personality type. If the resurrection life has an interest in breaking into your life, get you some. Like, get you some on the Sabbath. Get you some here in the bread and the cup. But please, like, I don't know if I've ever begged anything of you. Please do not miss that God is holding before you something of holy and precious worth. He's saying it's actually worth entering into. You don't have to work for it. It's here. The Sabbath will happen to you whether you like it or not. You might be injured or burned out, and in that place, you might just get a taste of rest. God says, you don't have to burn yourself out to get this. It's here. It's waiting. We must ask what will anchor us in our true story. Maybe it's the Sabbath. I think it might just be in this day and age. And so for the week ahead, I have one simple thing for you. Are you ready for this? Give me some nods of affirmation. One simple thing. Okay, pick a day, try it on. Suggestion, start it in the evening. Have a glass of wine, go to bed, or don't have a glass of wine. Go to sleep, sleep in, eat some breakfast, get some syrup on those pancakes. Go outside, but pick a day. If you only have an evening, praise be to God. Light a candle. Say, God, I'm remembering. You are the light of the world. I am entering into your rest. And then turn off your phone and actually go to bed. And if you're like, I can't sleep, that's fine. God is with you. Pick a day. That's the one thing. Ahead in the forthcoming weeks, we will actually work through these things. But for now, what we have is the Sabbath that sits ahead of us. For now, we have that God is inviting us. If you feel like, well, I have to figure out how to get this... Take a breath, stand with me. We're gonna turn to the bread and the cup because when creation, like all of this, our story starts by stopping. And so we too will start by taking in the death and the burial and the resurrection. We'll take in the bread and the cup.